So welcome to the Monday Night Dharma movie. <laughs> Sylvia started our uh, day in, uh, on Saturday with a um, little, little higher, the sound, uh, with a comment that um, you know, she wanted to be compelling and interesting and entertaining uh, and there is no more fulfilling entertainment than the Dharma because it is fulfilling, it fills us and um, so um, I wanted to talk about creating home coming home, a new home and how um, what are, when I was thinking about that for my own experience, a huge portion of that experience of home is this experience of belonging. And it's not just about my own individual belonging, but, but how do we co-create this experience that people aren't just welcomed, that the doors are open and people are welcomed into a space, but that people actually feel they are part of, that they are belonging. And, and I'm just really thrilled that, that I am invited to participate in the inauguration of this new home at a particular, you know, this particular juncture of, of um, uh, LGBT Pride Week and all of these events that are swirling around, and one of the things that that um, that has affected me with with this role that has been offered to me in in the Pride Parade because I was asked to talk about it um, uh, is you know there was a video that was made you know as as one of the um, uh, materials that the pride committee sends out and it goes out into the world and you don't you don't have much control over it and it and you have no idea where it's going in the technology these days and last week i got this email from a high school person that i have not heard from in 45 years <laughs> and i saw the name and you know, there was a contraction. Because my experience in high school was not, as an adolescent, wasn't that great. And, um, and, when, and I, don't wanna, I don't want to diminish those of you who had good experiences, connected experiences, but, you know, I was not in the in crowd. I was not with the football players and the cheerleaders. And, you know, I was... Uh, I was in a high school that had about 1,200 people. I was probably one of five people of color, and I was completely in the closet at the time. In fact, as, uh, as I was growing up, and it was difficult, um, I had this, I remember the moment I had this, I pieced this thought together, that if it's this person, if it's this hard to be a person of color in this world, I am never going to be gay. And you can feel that that was like the closet door shutting with all these locks on it. And um, so when I saw this email from this high school classmate who was part of the in crowd, there was this contraction. And uh, 
But I said, notice what's happening. Turn towards it. And, um, and I opened the email, and she said that she saw the video, and um, she wanted to write to me to connect and say that she didn't feel that she was as kind a person as she would now like to be when she was in high school. And, you know, it was a different experience for me to just, it's not even as if we were talking, but there was just this energetic realignment of something, of the heart, that allowed me to consider a different relationship to my own, you know, my own past. That it's not too late, that it's never too late to feel connected, to feel as if, oh, you know, I'm not sure that I'll ever go back to a reunion, but I'm kind of a little bit more open to it now. <laughs> Just by that one email. And that is just very interesting for me to notice that so as I was feeling this 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 aspect of belonging and how it how it can change my experience, I looked into sort of the etymological roots of the word, and um, in Old English it means to be along the side of, to be connected to. This connection, that, that this interrelationship that we have, that, that in order to belong, it's not something that you just simply tell people that you're welcomed into a space, but that you actually develop a relationship that there's this, this energetic connection between the members coming in. And we, and we do this as, a, as an awareness practice, that, that just like the spokes of this wheel, everybody is coming from different backgrounds, different life stories, different families, different, different cultures. And just allowing validating, meeting, meeting everybody for where they are without needing to, them to be different. That's the mindfulness practice. Meeting your moment, meeting your breath for what it is without wanting it to be, you know, uh, more pleasant or less unpleasant. And meeting beings, communities, for who they are without needing them to be different. That is profound. So we not just welcome all of our family lineage, our ancestors, the mentors and the guides, whoever we got, all of us have eclectic practices that have brought us to this moment. Really honoring all the directions that your life has taken to get into this seat, into this moment, into this community, into this spiritual space. And feeling 
Is this good enough? Is this safe enough? Is this the place I can call home right now? Maya Angelou writes, the ache for home lives in all of us. A safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. That place of not questioning, not second guessing, just being with being with our lives, being with, with all of the you know, thoughts, the feelings. What kind of heart and mind inspires that kind of freedom to be as we are without needing any of ourselves to be different? Well, you know, the beauty of this particular lineage, this particular tradition is, the, is that Fundamentally, it has these refuges that invite us into that sense of home, that sense of safety, knowing that there is no space in the world, there is no space in our life that's 100% safe. Because, guess what? There's the first noble truth. There is that place that we acknowledge that it, some, it very often hurts. And in spite of the first noble truth, there is that sense of safe enough space to begin to just relax. These refuges, which you can feel even in the word refuge, is an invitation into this safety. When I was um, practicing in Thailand, my abbot said, and I've never forgotten this teaching, that whenever you invoke the refuges, someone is all, somewhere in the world is always invoking them exactly at that moment. Because it's not just about Buddhist practice. There are not, it's not just about how many Buddhists there are in the world. It's that these intentions are so deeply, universally human that it's languished in a certain way in the Dharma. The first refuge, the first sense of, of possibility, potential, is the refuge of awakening, the refuge of the Buddha, so to speak. The refuge, not so much in the the, the image or the historical figure, but the fact that he was human and had this a possibility to awaken, to have insight, to have a heart that breaks. And that that possibility is, that aspiration is transformative in and of itself. But that the aspiration is supported with a path. It's not just do it. It's not just an ideal that I often uh, felt frustrated in different spiritual lineages that I practiced and experimented with, as, as we all do. Because unconditional regard, um, 
unconditionality is a, is a common feature, characteristic of so many different spiritual traditions. It was only when I got to know intimately this tradition that I saw this incremental path, this, these practices that begin to align and draw me into manifesting that aspiration. And they say that there are 84,000 doors into the Dharma, which is really just a metaphor, right? Because, uh, you know, there are so many lists and, and all of this stuff. And, and so I began multiplying, and because of my dad used to be a mathematician, and I, I tried to count up to the 84,000, which wasn't, it never happened. And he... At some point in time, he said, you know, it's just a metaphor for infinity. That's just, <laughs> you're, you're not paying attention. Um, and that what is literal, because I do like numbers, what is literal is the billions of people, the billions of beings that have walked this path. You know, in, in sort of the, the mainstream mindfulness world these days, there are all these research studies, and, and we have to prove the effectiveness of mindfulness. We have, to, we have to scientifically measure. Well, it ha for me, it already has been, because you have these generations over time that, that have experientially proven that, there, that, that freedom has been accessed. That as I think about you know, my own, my own um, historical ancestor generations that uh, I often do an ancestor meditation and, and part of um, the, the visualization is going back a hundred years, just four generations, and that includes your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents. That's about 30 beings. But you go over 10 generations, that's 250 years, and there's a little over 2,000 beings involved. But if you go over a thousand years, which is less than the existence of the Buddhist teachings, right? It's only, it's less than half of the 2,600 years that this current incarnation of the Buddha's teachings have been with our, with our collective humanity. And we're talking about 2.2 trillion people. And that's just the biological numbers. Think about all those cultures and um, uh, communities that have been touched, that, that, these, that the Dharma has permeated, of which it's just beginning to touch the multiplicity of our cultures in the West. I find that just so inspiring. And that... The third, and that speaks towards the third refuge of Sangha, of communities, of multiplicity of communities that the Dharma has moved through 
from its culture of origin through the Silk Route, through uh, Western and Eastern Asia, through Southeast Asia, across oceans. Because this practice is not about our individual or personal awakening. We can so easily, um, you know, in the, in the conditioning of our Western culture that tends to be so, you know, individualistic and personal, we can project that onto um, this experience. But, you know, the way that the community was defined, even in the Buddhist time, was one of interdependence. That that the community that actually offered the teachings, the monastic nuns and monks, were dependent daily for their sustenance. That they walked daily, that they couldn't um, cook for themselves, they couldn't store food overnight, they couldn't purchase food, that they had to get up in the morning, which is what we did, and, and um, take off our shoes in order to experience that humility. Even though you're offering the teachings, which is so precious to the community, it it creates that that spiritual um, sustenance that a a community... And there's power in that. And yet you take off your shoes to be connected to the earth because we are one and the same and that we are dependent on the food that goes into the bowl every morning. And even in, you know, even in our daily lay practice, how easy is it to have a daily practice at home, alone? You know, meditating however long that we did, 40 minutes. You know, that discipline is really hard to... to, um, motivate continually. And yet, when we do it together, there's a momentum. You know, it, it, it's, it's, not even, it's, it's, it's not even tangible. But the breath of someone next to me can ground me to come back to my own. A reminder. And I just want to acknowledge that different communities have different experiences of the same thing. So, uh, uh, since we're talking about Pride Week, in queer communities, silence in the past has been equated to death. Because silence, collective silence, can also be repressive. And that was the phrase that um, that came up in the, during the, the height of the AIDS epidemic when, when the Reagan administration wouldn't even talk about it. So really the silence, the stillness that we were cultivating, you know, in our sitting period and in the retreats that you do, in the day-longs that you do, the classes, is a noble silence. Noble meaning not so much elevated as as that which leads to freedom. 
you know, cultivating the stillness so that the awareness is present, even in the craziness, even when I'm arguing with my 99-year-old mother and I'm trying to figure out, why am I arguing with her? You know, like, do I have the awareness of asking myself, is this leading to more suffering or is this leading to more freedom? Because that's the choice point that awareness allows us into. That, that ability to create that safety for all of us. There is a play, this is from the Radiant Sutras, which is a, um, a scripture from the yoga tradition. There's a place in the heart where everything meets. Go there if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are there. Are you there? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is there and a regal, steady sense of resting in a perfect spot. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with the knowing, I belong here. I am at home here. Answer that call. And yet that feeling of belonging is often not so easy for us to cultivate. It's not so, it may be a, a simple invitation or instruction, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. That there are so many messages that our external world gives us that we're not good enough, that, we're, that we don't look right, that we don't think smart enough, that we, that all of, the, all of the marketing, all of the cultural messages that we get can, can create the exclusion, the separation, that, that this life is pain, and create more pain. And then we can internalize those messages. We can internalize those, that sense of exclusion or, or inadequacy, and all of a sudden, the judgments, the self-judgments, the self-criticism, the, the inadequacy that we give ourselves, that we're not good enough, that we'll never be good enough, that we're broken in some way. Even if it's subtle of just neglecting ourselves, not paying attention to ourselves, There are all these, we begin to internalize all of the external glass ceilings that the world gives. And they become, you know, our, our actual experience. When really, who would we be if we were never disconnected with that sense of wholeness? That sense of awareness and kindness of who we really are in this world. 
you know, this, um, this issue of identity and, and being true to who we are is, is, is such a practice to be unpacked. I can point to it. But, you know, it's a journey for each of us. Who are we really? That is one of the fundamental questions of, of this practice. And it's not, it's not a question that has an answer. It's a repeating question over and over again. As a, as a queer person of color, I've had these self-limiting thoughts over and over again. And with the tragedy and the shootings in Orlando, I could feel that trigger of, of a whole community being exterminated yet again. And so that's why, I'll return to that thought, and that's why creating this, these places of safety, of refuge, for different cultural experiences, so that the Dharma, the teachings can be known, felt, experientially proven, is so important. And that's what we've been doing as a larger community over the last two decades, that we've created um, retreats, the women's retreats in the early 80s that um, Julie Wester and Deborah Chamberlain Taylor and, and um, Christina Feldman created. The, the queer retreats came about in the mid-90s with Irina Weissman and Eric Kolvig and, and uh, people of color retreats and the, and the groups that have that have uh, emerged, um, but also for young adults, for, um, uh, for people in recovery. These safe places are really necessary for everybody's experience, not just a particular cultural background. Because when we feel safe enough, we can open to the total, to the whole. How do we create this sense of belonging, not just about my own sense of belonging, but a belonging that is applicable to people from different experiences than my own background? That's what we're co-creating. And that's really amazing because when we begin to have that intention in the beginning, we have so much more traction. It's so much more difficult to retrofit safety after the fact. But when we have that aspiration in the beginning, it really has a profound sense of being able to include
we begin to cultivate an experience that is not just surviving the first noble truth. It is what is beyond the first noble truth. What are the other three noble truths that we all walk? It is a practice that invites us to live into this collective potential that we awaken together. We don't awaken separately. It's not, as I was saying earlier, even the monastics don't go off into a cave for 12 years because they are interdependent on the community itself. So the sense of belonging is also an experience of healing, of coming together even in the middle of difference. When I was a closeted man, I did all these butch things to, you know, try to prove to myself uh, that the closet was appropriate. And one of those butch things was, um, uh, I was a park ranger for a while. in the Southwest, which was beautiful. I mean, I really am, it's not that I was glad to be in the closet, but I was really glad to be in the wilderness. And, and that was part of my path, actually, that connected me with, with the world, a larger world than just my own suffering. And so uh, I was um, in this national, some of you may have been there, um, in, uh, in Kenyan lands and arches, and I and I uh, went into Antelope Canyon, which is on the uh, Diné or the Navajo Reservation, and you needed a guide. And at the time, I had this really long hair, and uh, uh, I had been out all summer, and so the guide, the native guide, turned to me and uh, said, "Um, what tribe are you from? And uh, I said, well, uh, you know, I'm Chinese-American and my parents came from Shanghai. And, you know, it was like a sleight of hand. He started, he started with connect, trying to connect on a, on a visual piece of familiarity. And when I articulated the difference, there was this movement. And he, what he said to me, oh, we're all from the same place because we all came over across the Bering Strait. I mean, it was the second breath of the conversation. And that always made an impression on me that here I was articulating a difference and he was including me in spite of that difference. How do we... How do we create that sense of belonging in the moment? It was, it allowed me to be in the closet that whole summer (laughs) because I felt that, you know, I had a place. Because we have this peculiar conditioning in our culture, our more Western culture that that we think we can do it alone, that we're supposed to do it alone. You know, that if we, whether it's the personality type or the cultural norms that, you know, the, the individualistic, you know, 
um, achievement. But actually, we can't do it alone. We're not supposed to do it alone. And that interconnection is a form of intimacy that this practice invites us into. I read this on Saturday from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, and whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I cannot be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. That is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. I felt that in Orlando. And I'll tell you why. Because in the midst of that horrific tragedy, there was, of course, a call for for blood. And that is a really sensitive subject in LGBT communities because the antiquated laws of this land still prohibit gay men from donating blood if they're sexually active. So there's this whole component of the communities that had been injured that could not could not make that donation poignant, painful. And I could feel, you know, that contraction until I heard that blood was gushing in from all aspects of our world. There was actually more blood that was donated than was needed. Where did that blood come from? Blood comes from the same word, root, as blessings. This is the blessing of our, this is, this is the, the metaphor of our life. The blessings that are coming into a community that has been harmed. These blessings were coming in from every single community regardless of race, regardless of orientation. We are that interconnected. And as traumatic as it was, is, it is different than what I remember in 1973 when there was a similar... massacre of a gay bar in New Orleans and no one paid attention and and uh, it was at a different time and it was at a time in which some of the deceased bodies were never claimed by family members because they were so ashamed of being queer, that the news never reported it. And to have 
it be different this time? Even though there are fringe, you know, folks out there saying what they're saying. But to have such a huge piece of our culture is pay attention with care. It's like that individual experience I had with, with my high school classmate. You know, there's a realignment that's possible. That this healing can occur collectively. And in the middle of these sorrows, in the middle of the 10,000 sorrows, this is why the parade and pride, wherever it is in the world, is not just for queer people. And that's why I, that's, I'm just so... Mm, it just makes my heart sing that Spirit Rock has, has put so much effort in inviting everyone into the parade. Because if you can share in our sorrow, you've got to share in our joy. Because it's your joy, too. And that's how we're interconnected. There was a vigil last night in Orlando, and 50,000 people showed up. So I thought I would play this. I've been doing my Dharma talks using music videos these days. So um, this, is, this is one, and it's really just a um, homage to those people. It was a song that was created, you'll see the credits at the very end, it was a song that was created in four hours.
sorry that I don't think that it went through the sound system. Do we belong in the midst of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows? Which means, do we belong in this life? Do we belong here in this life, regardless of how it shows up for us? And there is a story from the Buddha's life that actually shows this possibility of being completely present, regardless of external conditions. And it was, it was right when he was sitting before his awakening, underneath the Bodhi tree, underneath, depending upon you know, whether this, the lineage that you um, uh, practice, whether it was... Um, uh, seven days or 49 days or... But during that time that he was sitting, Mara comes to him. And Mara says, you do not deserve that seat. That seat is mine. And he begins to throw all of these um, windstorms and volcanoes and earth and mountains to dislodge the Buddha from his dharma seat, from his place of stillness, from the possibility of his awakening. And what it said is, is that all of these objects and, and, and tortures just fell like celestial flowers at his feet. And then he, then he called out all these, ar- these infinite armies behind him. And they threw all of these weapons. And um, the armies said, yes, we are Mara's witness. You do not belong there. And this is the external culture telling us. And do we believe those messages? that we don't belong here, that we need to be someone else, that we're not good enough, that somehow we don't make the grade. And the Buddha looked at Mara and did that mudra, did that gesture by by touching his middle finger on his right hand to the ground calling the Earth Mother as his witness. The mother that that offered him this life is enough 
to prove to these armies, and it dispelled all the armies into the four corners of the universe, that it was the Earth Mother that was his support in his inalienable right to be in that seat, to be in the possibility of freedom. When in my, in my retreat practice, uh, part of the ritual that I would offer myself was to take the refuges whenever I sat for a, a sitting period. And um, one of the uh, one of my early invitations from a teacher was to also, at the end of the refuges, say, and I surrender to the Dharma. So I began to do that. And as I, as I let go into that practice, I added my own phrase. I said, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, Sangha. I surrender to the Dharma. I deserve the Dharma. There is no one that is not deserving of these teachings. They cannot be taken away from us. And that is when we belong unconditionally. Especially given the impact on um, uh, the communities of of Orlando. Uh, A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of starting LGBT retreats on the East Coast in Garrison. And uh, a queer young Latino man from New York City wrote this after the retreat. It feels as if I've been waiting for this retreat all my life. Part of me wishes that it could have happened earlier, but grateful that it is happening now. Part of me also wishes to have more time in the Dharma simply to absorb its freedom. I knew this was a spiritual retreat, but I had no idea it would include spiritual conversations about gay people, much less people of color. For the first time in my life, I can say... I feel good and wonderful about being a gay man. I finally know what joy is. This joy means so much to me. I think, regardless of whether you're Latino or not, regardless of whether you're a man or not, regardless of whether you're gay, straight, bisexual, transgender or not, we have all felt that joy. To some extent, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. There is just tremendous healing in that sense of belonging in a deeper and deeper way. That place of deeper is the internalizing It's the recalibration of all those external messages that we internalize about not being good enough. This is the realignment. This is the recalibration. This is the reconditioning that this practice invites us into. That we begin to know for certain 
an internal truth that we belong wherever we walk in this world, regardless of whatever people or conditions are telling us. That the home, that sense of home, is not in a physical space. But it's something that we take with us, wherever we go. And when we take it with us, the world becomes home. And when the more of us that feels that, the world becomes home for all of us. So I'm going to end with another music video. Hopefully it will pipe into the sound system. And hopefully it will be about the joy of this sense of belonging. So it's still not piping into the sound system. This is uh, a piece of music done by Willow Smith, who is the child of Will Smith, and she is uh, only 16. But I think she did this uh, when she was 14. So your volume's up inside. Yeah. And it was working. Shall we? Let's just. Mark? Uh, can you take a look at this icon? It's, um, I think I got it. Think you got it? Yeah.
Just one more aspect of the interconnection, that it just is so moving to me that the the multiplicity of the of of the queer communities in in all its different flavors and colors is mainstreaming the Dharma. I mean, the visibility of the Dharma of the Grand Marshals. Three of us are practitioners. And when, you know, they were appointed or voted, the, the parade committee 
invited me to do a meditation for their uh, uh, monthly meeting because I'm not sure that they knew what hit them. <laughs> and it's so beautiful that, that the Dharma is reaching this, um, this number of people in this way. It's, it's really a deep interconnection because it couldn't have happened just within, within LGBTQ communities. It had the support of all of you. So deep appreciation for your attendance. I've gone over time. It's already the end of the session. But I hope to see you this weekend. If not, um, hope to see you soon, especially in this beautiful hall that I hope you will all call home. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.